meeting is being recorded. Hi, everyone. I'm Tish Conlon, and here's uh, Tish Talk. Today, I have a repeat guest, someone everyone uh, loves to listen to, full of knowledge, Matthew Errett. Matthew, for those of you who don't know, um, is uh, has written his fourth book. Matthew, uh, welcome to the show. What is your fourth book? Uh, show it to the audience here. It's, uh, we're going to yeah, dive into this topic. Yeah, I got it right here. Um, yeah, this is Clash of the Two Americas, uh, Volume 4 on the Anglo-Venetian roots of the deep state. Maybe wow. it was to just sort of demystify this word deep state a little bit, put some meat on the bones, since there's com- conflicting definitions of what it means to different people. Is it, you know, there's, again, I don't have to go through the list, but it, people could have debates and fights about those, the, the same word um, all the time. Deep state is a very charged one. Some people, there's a lot of psyops as well, run by intelligence agencies to try to misdirect the minds of people who are, not inclined to think about or believe in uh, common narratives that are being fed to us by the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And so for those who think outside the box, there's a lot of nets that have been created to capture the minds of those fish that jump outside the big net into smaller controlled nets and provide explanatory narratives that try to spin things in such a way that makes it seem like, you know, the great conspiracies hurting us towards a very bad orientation are actually caused by, let's say, um, UFOs, alien, hostile aliens, or um, the Chinese that controlled George yes. Soros, that infiltrated our government, yes. or there's so many spins and twists. So I try, we tried, my wife and I, who co-wrote this with me, to demystify that and really just showcase oh. the broader historical currents of what this deep state thing is embedded in U.S., in the USA, in Canada, in Europe, as mm-hmm. an international o- operation, which is more than any nation state. And it goes back to the days of ancient Babylon. It shapes much of or misshapes almost everything artistic and scientific mm-hmm. over the, the centuries. Um, it has certain common modus operandi, certain very common traits that one, anyone's mind without a PhD can come to explore and understand and uh, internalize. And, um, and it has certain weaknesses. Wow. Both today as, it, as much as it did back in the days of ancient Rome or Venice. Mm-hmm. A thousand years ago, there's there's similar weaknesses, so it's good just to understand it and thus yeah. not fall for its traps and understand what to do uh, wow. to you know, navigate through the storm. Wow, I know. Um, I'm definitely going to pick up that book, by the way, and I'm looking forward to reading it for next time if I can get you on. I know sure. how popular you are. Today, I want to unpack something for the audience. This is a fight I've been having with my uh, my teenage son. I mean, most of the, a lot of the kids have been trained through this education system, atheist, the woke, the, the woke, you know, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and you know, the education system is dumbed down. But he love he I love to challenge him. He loves to challenge me. And I got stuck. And I I thought I've got to get Matthew to unpack this. The whole Darwin's theory of evolution and how it connects to the eugenist movement and this incredible uh, clown world that we're living in today. When you can have, you know, floating balloons uh, that people are, you know, they're shooting down. Um, we have so many, um, you know, events happening that are, you know, it, it's so, uh, it's so concerning. And yet you can see the threads going way back. I mean, we have all these food plants burning down. We've got train derailments. I mean, while they're saying that uh, Ohio is safe, um, the Environmental Protection Agency, they're saying, oh, it's all safe while there's like fish, you know, dead and animals Floating all the river systems yeah. and birds falling out of the sky and, yeah. and chickens yet- all dying. It smells like chlorine. And you're like, what the hell are you talking about? 
<laughs> yeah, like it's like, oh, that's not a concern at all. But you can't buy a gas stove, you know? That's yeah. that's really concerning. Yeah. Um, so, can you take us back historically? Why why is it uh, that this is pervasive throughout history? Where did it start? Do you think that Darwin's theory of evolution is just being um, carried out now in this uh, transhumanism movement? And uh, how can you connect it back? Can you give us a little lesson on that today? And I'll jump in where I can. Yeah, okay. Um, I'll do my best. Um, it's a tall order, but I think we can do some justice to the idea. And for the justice that we don't do to the idea, I encourage people to pick up my new book. And there's several chapters that go into much more of a deep dive, um, which honestly, there's only so much you can do in, in the context of, a, of an oral interview live, but we'll see what we can do. So the yeah. first thing I would say, you're, you're correct in recognizing a direct con- continuity between the Darwinian interpretation of nature and the what was darwin trying to do well darwin and and um alfred wallace who was a co they say co-architect of darwin's theory as well as the promoter of it the the loudest promoter uh, thomas huxley um aka darwin's bulldog as he was told what are they what are they doing well first of all the the they're looking at the new evidence that was becoming much very loud of fossils that demonstrated that Things were not maybe literally as they were, as they appeared by some religious interpretations of the Bible that asserted that everything just sort of appeared um, at a certain point, maybe 6,000 years ago, as I think what the consensus was, not that it even says that in the Bible, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, It just all appeared at once. And humans were formed walking around with, with monkeys and lions and petting each other in the garden of Eden. And then, you know, as, as far as the, the, the standard model explanation of life was, you know, exactly the sort of story you see in, in the book of Genesis. And so the new fossil records began to challenge some of that, indicating that there were many other forms of species of life before humans um, that don't exist anymore. And, you know, I, I don't know what the current number is. Some say it's like 99.9% of the living species that have ever been don't exist anymore. And it has nothing to do with us having too many SUVs. But there is a challenge. So how do you account for what is the causal mechanism in the universe that would account for the uh, transformation of these different species that no longer exist to the point that we now are sitting here as the first organic species contemplating that entire process of creation, right? No other species ever s- sat back and <laughs> said with their like giraffe kindred, hey, uh, how did our necks get so long? You know, like, let's think about this. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, you, you had a variety of very robust scientists positing different theories. Um, Darwin was one of them, but he was not the only one. You know, there's people like Lamarck, uh, who was putting forth some interesting concepts that took into consideration matters of intention. Um, there were other figures like James Dwight Dana, the American biologist and geologist, who did also work simultaneously uh, at the time of Darwin and his voyage on the Beagle, who was also looking at... Uh, certain mechanisms like the the increased centralization of nervous systems. He's like, okay, over time, it seems like lower orders of life that are earlier in appearance in the fossil records had a more a, a wider distribution of a nervous system that didn't concentrate itself as we find it in the case of human beings or monkeys or higher forms of life, which tend to use their, their paws, right, in a more of an active way instead of it just being for traveling. Or like an octopus, you know, the whole brain is like distributed amongst its tentacles, right? Yes. Um, but so human beings have this 
seem to be the most one of the more recent appearances of uh, creation in a material organic matter that expresses thought in a way which utilizes the hands not for travel, but for, as, a, as an extension of our um, of our mind to communicate, you know, also art, mm-hmm. artistry is, is made possible. We're also, as, as Plato points out, the only creature to, uh, organically or very naturally look up all other species kind of like look down or sideways birds, including who are closer to the heavens still look straighter or down. They don't tend to like look up and contemplate the stars, mm, interesting. right? Which is that's, that's yeah. brought up in Plato's Timaeus. And then you got people like Georges Cuvier, um, another great figure uh, of biology around the time of Darwin, uh, Karl Ernst von Bayer, who was also looking at harmonics. Like how did the, how did we, how do you understand the harmony of the different organs making up organisms emerge in such a way that if like, let's say the, the giraffe's heart has to be a certain size, its liver at certain size, its neck has to be of a certain strength. Um, in order just to maintain an equilibrium of what its nature demands. And if one thing were a little bit too big or processed blood too much, it would just die. It would either atrophy or die. So they were looking at these questions of harmony, purpose, design, um, that each creature within a biosystem would fulfill a purpose within something. So they were looking at matters of purpose, of directionality. Um, you know, so these were the sorts of robust ideas being uh, debated and discussed. And and it wasn't, hmm? I was going to say with uh, with with the theory of evolution, what a lot of like, you know, people recognize is this the concept of survival of the fittest. And then, you know, we're taking this um, this concept throughout history mm-hmm. with the eugenics movement. It's like what makes someone fit and then who's deciding what it how you're deemed to be fit, you know, Um was there a compete this com- with competing with creationism? Can you explain that a little bit? Um, how that's yeah. connected now to these eugenicists because they're always uh, deeming okay. what is superior and what is what will survive and what yeah, won't. Yeah. Right. Well, so the first thing I would say, it's good that you're you're recognizing um, a false dichotomization between literal creationists who have a literalist's reading of the Bible versus the Darwinists. And we were told we had to pick an extreme. Mm-hmm. And this this was a false debate. It was never true. It was never a matter of picking one of these two extremes. Like either you're a scientist who believes in truth and thus you go you're a Darwinian yeah. or right. you are a person of faith. And thus, you believe in the literalist's reading of the Bible. And the way Thomas Huxley, who was known as Darwin's handler, oversaw these public debates, which were covered by magazines like Nature Magazine, which Thomas Huxley co-created to promote Darwinism, was to, to basically find the weakest fanatical representatives of the Anglican Church who hated Darwin and then put them up in very public media coverage uh, environments to have th- then debate not with Darwin, but to debate with Thomas Huxley, because Huxley was the one who was um, more capable of putting into words uh, vicious qualities of polemical discourse that could annihilate and make his ignorant uh, rivals look like fools, which he was he was very creative and very misanthropic. But they never really allowed Darwin to debate his own position because he couldn't really um, bit of bit of a um, introvert introvert. uh, Yeah. Yeah, whether or not that was because maybe he didn't even write his own theories, I've I've seen interesting uh, oh, writings about that. But whatever, let's yeah. just say he did write his own theories and he had his handler. Rep- his ha- so that that was the way. Pick a side. 
Now, all of the voices, like I just mentioned, Georges Cuvier and Lamarck and uh, and James Dwight Dana and Carl Ernst von Bana, and there are many others um, who were doing actual robust work on the principles of 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 direction, uh, intelligent design, which was not creationism, but actually founded upon real solid scientific principles. They were all sort of brushed out of the mix, and people found themselves picking a side. Now, one of the problems, and I'm going to get back at the question of, of survival of the fittest as a geopolitical philosophy more than a scientific one, and its usefulness, uh, the usefulness of making this appear to be a scientific principle. Um, For the depopulation agenda. Yeah, that comes in. But okay. so the first thing is that where where was Darwin off? Well, number one, in his system, it demands several things. Number one, randomness has to be a causal assumed in the Darwinian system to be a causal mechanism of change. So there's mm -hmm. random mutations going on. It's just positive that it's like rolling of the dice randomly. And at some point, sometimes the dice roll the right way and you get a bigger claw. That bigger claw is then used mm -hmm. to assist, to basically assist yourself in yes. expressing your desires for sex, spreading your seed, having food and destroying your rivals. So in a world of, a, of supposed diminishing returns, there's always this scarcity function that mm -hmm. causes the demands for bigger feathers, bigger claws, faster spurts that allow you to have more sex, spread your genes, kill mm -hmm. your neighbors, kill your rivals for, for, right, for scarcity. So that's, that's part of it. The other thing is that it demands also gradualism, that, that species under the Darwinian mechanism have to be assumed to slowly grow a claw millimeter by millimeter, slowly, gradually change. Now, the problem here, crisis-wise, for the Darwinians was that in the fossil records themselves, we never really see evidence of such gradualism ever occurring. What you tend to find is whole systems disappearing and new systems with different attributes emerging in the sedimentary uh, rocks over time. So mm -hmm. it, what you seem to have are these discontinuous uh, leaps, sometimes known as discrete versus continuous. So discrete is, is like a piano. The keys on a piano continuous would be like the 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 bowing of a of a cello, right? Okay. Whereas like the a e i o u a e i o u would be like the discrete idea of vowels, right? Uh -huh. There's like twenty twenty six letters, but right. the con continuum of sound between all of those letters is of an infinite spectrum. Mm -hmm. So they're imposing. Um, the Darwinians needed to impose. Um, a system that would blind us to any evidence of creative leaps or directionality in nature, because we are, after all, the effect of nature. Human beings emerge out of a natural process with laws in the universe that existed before yes. humans and before even living matter existed. There was still gravity, electromagnetism, the laws of the universe that shape it all. So you would imagine that some of those laws would be imprinted within the evidence of the fossil records and within our own experience as a humans, human beings as well. We might express universal traits that might be, let's say, discon one discontinuous and creative mm -hmm. of erring leaps of higher potential going from systems of lower order to higher order uh, potential. You might find directionality. Mm -hmm. And that's another law in the Darwinian system is it, it denies and ask any honest Darwin Darwinian if they allow directionality and they will say no, no, no directionality, because that is the directionality implies a moral assumption onto the system because directionality oh, means directed towards what, better or worse, better and worse yeah. are, the, are the artifacts of a moral considerations, right? Oh, better and worse, yeah. good, bad. 
So they're like, no, 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 that's not scientific. Science is the the severing of all human thought and sentiment from the assumed cold um, amorality that is nature. So, but we actually, so then, then you're left with another paradox. Not only do you have to deal with the evidence of the discontinuous fossil records, Mm-hmm. But then you also have to deal with the fact that, well, it is, there's evidence that we were simple celled amoebas, something like they could say the Precambrian period, maybe 500 million years ago, mm-hmm. where there were just simple celled, very, very low potential uh, organisms floating around in, in like, you know, early, yeah. early uh, swamps or whatever. Yeah. And now all of a sudden there's us, right? Who are having yeah. like abstract concepts, sharing ideas of freedom, virtue, love over the course of electricity being transformed by uh, you know, from my thoughts, shaping my body, having certain concepts that create yes. frequencies and waves picked up by my recording devices, yeah. sent off by light to you received and then transformed back. Like you're saying all of that is just random luck. Well, that's yeah. a big, big barn that's... you want me to like hold on my back here. Yeah. Um, I, I, I showed my son a video because that's what he's learning in school, right? From his teachers. And, and then they're all atheists. I mean, there's no soul component to our journey, but he, uh, the, the odds of the randomness working were like this unbelievable number that's impossible. It was literally mathematically impossible. Mm-hmm. There's no incremental leaps in the human development. I mean, there's no like small, like we got a longer finger, the thumb change, you know, there's none of that in the fossil records at all. Um, Like there's no like, oh, amoeba, then we get this, you know, then we're one legged dragging around on land. You know, (laughs) there's none of that with the, with the, when we go back. So, uh, but this whole concept of um, survival, the fittest is imprinted in us very strongly. And in our subconscious, like the cultural Marxism, there's that, and it keeps it, the competition, the scarcity, and you have to be the fittest in order to make it. That seems to be the the thing that uh, is connected with it, uh, to me, the most. Yeah. yeah. Well, and this is where it gets interesting. Um, well, it's already been interesting, but it gets even more interesting because um, in the idea of the Darwinian mechanisms of survival of the fittest, like nature selects the most fit. Well, number one, you're still allowing the concept in a dirty way of selection. Like something is selecting, if it's nature, that's still selecting the fittest. You're still sort of imposing some moral judgment onto science, first of all. But number two, um, we actually find evidence in nature of a lot of synergy and cooperation. Even like, you know, you see these cases in YouTube of like mom lions who kill like a prey and then see a baby and will try to adopt the baby as their own or like, tigers who adopt baby piglets if they're if they're a a mom or even even males do the same thing with children of another species that they would normally you would think eat and it's like explain that by any survival necessity um or or biological necessity it makes no sense but it's everywhere but they have to ignore things as just being like well what what I often see is is a Darwinian will say, oh, but that's just the irrationalism of the universe. There's there's cases of just absurdity because the universe is ultimately without purpose anyway. So it's like, or maybe there are purposes that you are unwilling to even think about because you're ideologically committed to your current uh, filters. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> systems of cooperation. I mean, it's just like now it's it's easier to control people with division and scarcity and competition, but systems of cooperation scientifically shown over and over to work yeah. better. Much better. Always better. Always exactly. better in the end. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, like 
here's the go ahead yeah so the thing i just want to get at quickly is that darwin admitted in his autobiography and i've cited this quote many times because it's so important that he was only able and this is 1838 that he wrote this and he says or he wrote it later on but this is an experience in 1838 uh when he was on the beagle and, and doing his voyages um in the galapagos and stuff and he writes he in looking for a mechanism to account for um the appearance of new species and the destruction of old species i happened upon someone gave me he doesn't say who uh thomas malthus's essays on population of 1790 uh, 1799 and it was then by reading this essay this wonderful essay as he describes it that i had better had an appreciation for the struggle for sur- this for survival in a world of diminishing returns uh that human beings uh go through which i then gave me an understanding of a theory by which to work and of course he's describing now what he's going to yeah. use that becomes darwin's theory of evolution what is what is malthus so he's basically saying he just took the mechanism of malthus what is malthus malthus is very clear he literally says in the first edition of his essays on population being himself an employee of the british east india company who's working at the british haleybury college um which in manchester which is the the primary college of the british east india company um economists and and all like all of their managers have to be processed in haleybury college he's the head of that so he's he's working for the empire he he's he's nominally a, a man of the cloth a man of the church but yeah, he's right. in his book talking about the scientific how to scientifically ma- manage or cull human populations using the gifts that god has given us and he literally spends time talking about uh disease famine war um as being unfortunate gifts Oh, and he yes. says that there, it's sad that we have to see famine and war and disease kill people and babies, but they're ultimately necessary and useful tools for leaders of society to manage the the population, which will necessarily overpopulate if we let people procreate as they will. And um, and so it's his his theories were behind the 26 famines that were orchestrated by the British Empire over the course of two, 200 years in India which killed well over, well over 80 million people, probably in the hundreds of millions of people unnecessarily, but by controlled famines. And the British Empire, when they managed India, that's what they did. They did the same thing to Ireland. It was a Malthusian science that justified the cold logic of extracting the food from Ireland during a time of famine. So a a certain famine did hit, but it wasn't famine that killed the people. Ireland produced more than enough food and it wasn't just potatoes. They produced a lot of cattle, a lot of, a lot of wheat, a lot of grain, a lot of oats, a lot of other things. So Mm -hmm. why is it potato, a blight in potatoes caused 4 million or 2 million Irish to die? No, 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 no. You had, you had British there enforcing a Malthusian policy to force the farmers to give up their food, export it to foreign markets and let them suffer and die in the millions in Ireland. That was, that was Malthus. So it's cold, anti-scientific, pro-imperial systems of theorizing to justify empire. Now, the problem was in the optimism of the creative leaps that were happening in the 19th century when there was still a greater faith in a a creator that made us in in the creator's image that mandated us with the the demands to be fruitful and multiply, which people took very seriously. and And that didn't simply mean multiplying like a virus. To be fruitful was the condition upon the multiplication. So you can only have more people if you were being fruitful, being fruitful is qualitative, multiplying is being quantitative. So that meant creative new discoveries, inventions uh, had to be in, 
encouraged, inspired, and applied in the form of new technologies that then allowed people to not only leap, be, leap outside of the limits to growth, which was how the United States went from, it, it quadrupled its population in the first 40 years of its existence. Um, it was by these, these spirited leaps of faith into the unknown that allowed for new discoveries to happen. And, and it was through faith because if people who were making those big discoveries did not have faith that there was something there truthfully to be discovered, then they wouldn't have discovered those, those things that they discovered. So you have to, it, cause you know, it's like two people could have the same evidence in front of them, but one doesn't believe that truth exists. The other does it. They will get two different outcomes with the data you present them. So that was what was becoming more normalized around the world was this idea that we could always leap beyond the limits to growth. We could always support more people at a higher quality of life. And Malthus w was, was becoming unpopular. So Thomas Huxley, being it that he worked for, you know, a, I mean, he, he worked for the British Royal Society. Um, he was a very high level grand strategist with a lot of hate of humanity he did he worked in syphilis ridden regions of, of london i mean he saw a lot of bad things when he was like a, a, a the assistant to a surgeon like he you know he wasn't born from a, a blue blood rich family but he he developed this this hardcore creative hate that he wanted to put to work for the for masters which is what he did when he became darwin's handler and they needed to then give more strength to the survival of the fittest ethic which was again like i said going pop unpopular with the the collapse of Malthus and so the Darwinian interpretation of natural selection became the tool but the problem was even though people started abiding by the Darwinian doctrine in interpreting natural science they still didn't really want to apply it or extend it to organizing human societies around the weeding out of the unfit and even Darwin to his cousin Galton Francis Galton sir Francis Galton, um, who is the, the sort of father, the founder of eugenics. Darwin at first didn't like the extrapolation of his system of logic onto human societies. And he even says in his Descent of Man, he is like, you know, what other species is stupid enough to allow its most unfit to breed or to even exist? Only humans are this stupid, he says. And then he says in the next, in the next paragraph, but we are the only moral creature and thus we are impelled not to kill off the old or the weak. And that's what he says. And I think, I think he was, I think he was being genuine personally. Okay. I think what he just said, uh, he would rather not that his logic be true. <laughs> right, right. Um, but in his, his letters, public letters to his cousin Galton, who was assigned to find a more solid extrapolation onto human systems of the Darwinian mechanisms. And that became again, eugenics, the science of weeding out the unfit. Um, he admits you have made Galton a convert out of me. And he admits uh, after, uh, after a few months of back and forth, he's like, you, you win. I'm wrong. Eugenics is, is sincerely, uh, the, the queen of sciences. You're right. Um, and, and, you know, you have then, so what is eugenics? It's, yeah, the, it is the role of the government to make the world better. Well, if that's true, well, mm -hmm. how do you define better? Right. And if, 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 if the, if the, the gene pool can be contaminated with, um, people who reproduce but have low IQs, who have low genetic stock, low breeding, who are criminally prone, you could then say, well, we that that letting that go unchecked is making the world worse. And so we want to create conditions whereby that does not happen by either sterilizing or euthanizing those who are holding back evolu the force of evolution. 
and also encouraging the better stock to breed. Or later on, what became promoted by Darwin, uh, sorry, by Huxley's, Thomas Huxley's uh, grandchildren, Aldous and Julian alike, as well as Leonard, their father, who was also the head of the British Eugenic Society in his own time and worked closely with Galton, is the idea of test two babies, you know, like in Brave New World. Uh, yes. We'll, we'll breed the alpha pluses. We'll breed how many alphas, how many betas, how many gammas, how many low, low level epsilons who are going to be bred to be stupid and enjoy doing repetitive dirty work for in mining, for example. You know, um, this became a more sort of scientific, uh, modern technocratic twist to the same old thing. Um, but it does have a direct continuity. Like I said, in Darwin's sons, his grandsons are all high level operatives working for the British Eugenic Society, Galton too. And Galton even said, I see no reason why this science should not be a, a, a new religion in the future. And they, he was speaking for a big chunk of the oligarchy that he, that he represented, uh, who wanted to replace the old traditions and the old value structures that animated all civilization, not only Christianity, but Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, like all of the world's ancient traditions that carried with them certain common concepts of morality, ethics, respecting your neighbor, respecting the idea that you have a soul, that you're more than the sum total of your parts, that you're made in the image of uh, an architect given different names, but that has certain attributes of love and of reason that made the universe according to discoverable law. Those ideas had to be destroyed. And so eugenics was the most convenient uh, package to bring about a new sort of pseudo-religion for the the elites that would then be used to then justify the control of the minds and and physical um world in which the victim people were expected to adapt to like animals because we're unlike animals we're we're typically a creature that creates new situations if there's an unjust world we can do like Ben Franklin if we're creative and moral and courageous and create a new set of rules that are not fixed and rigged by by uh sociopaths we can we can create new new rules in a lawful way. We can break rules in a lawful way. Ha, irony. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and they don't want that. They want us to think about only just accepting standard um, models or consensuses shaped by consen- uh, priests, experts that we then right. just adapt to like animals in a zoo. I, I have a question yeah. because I've listened to a few of your podcasts and uh, oh we've lost oh there I lost you for a bit. Uh, <clears throat> And this whole requirement. So you see how there's this breakdown of society. I had a, I had a guest and we talked about cultural Marxism and how they, you know, they need to break down the family and, you know, and all of the traditional values and, and, and really attack Christianity here in Western countries. Sort of we're founded on that. And they, um, but why, why do they need to do that? Um, you know, when they break down the individual with this, all of this degeneracy, like I, I don't really understand how that connects to sort of improving the gene pool when everything they do um, and you can walk outside your door and you see how society has declined you know drug Mm. addiction is up pornography i mean we're not improving society what is their end game when they are using all of these things uh, to harm us and you know we 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 know that the education is so poor here in western countries the kids have been dumbed down there's they have the chemical uh ways of dumbing us down so are they are they breeding the next role of you know factory workers and and you know low-level miners are they dumbing us down for that because they they've come to the point where they're like we've got ai 
We've got so much AI, we're we're going to bow down to the gods of AI. Can you explain that? So it looks like how can they be doing good when they're uh, dumbing us down and they're making us addicted and and they're breaking us all apart and demoralizing us and people are committing suicide in droves? What's the end game? Can you connect those dots a bit clearer? How's that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's where the hypocrisy of the whole thing becomes more clear. And it's like, did Malthus believe in Malthusianism? I've mm-hmm. seen no evidence that Malthus actually believed ultimately in his own theories. He produced his theories as he was commissioned to do to justify a system of master-slave relations in a society that was expected to adapt to um, a very immoral, perverse set of standards under an empire you know the british empire was the only one world government known at that time the empire in which the sun never set and they had to maintain they could this tiny little island you're like how did that tiny island subdue 23 percent of the world's landmass and so many of the different people of the world right how did that happen now they had to do a lot of dirty games they had to create rules that they that would be designed to be only broken by those who shape the rules right like you get somebody into a casino to get addicted to the the norms of the casino you're not going to see the owners of the casino playing the, playing their own games. They know that it's rigged. They're creating addiction. They're creating a system where people undermine them, their own sovereignty by playing into the, the great game, as it was called. Um, so Malthus had enough evidence at his disposal to know that human beings were not animals. And he, his whole point was, well, just like the animals, we have to check the, the, the over the excess breeders of the animal kingdom under, uh, a, you know, zookeepers and others can't just let their, their, their creatures in the zoo just always just, you know, uh, reproduce. Same thing for humans. So he didn't make, he consciously didn't make a qualitative differentiation between any other uh, order of species in the, the biological kingdom and human beings. He said, we're just, we're just a descent from effectively, um, apes and wolves. Um, so if that were true, and if the law of the jungle were what animates and what shapes the, the laws of humankind, well, yeah, maybe you could say that Malthus was right. But he knew that we that he was wrong. He knew that there was evidence yeah. to the contrary, but he pushed it anyway. And Thomas Thomas Huxley, did Thomas Huxley believe in Darwin? No, I've got letters that I've cited before that really? are publicly known where Thomas Huxley even says he's not persuaded at all that Darwin's right. And yet, despite that, he he put more effort than anybody that ever existed into fighting to advance and normalize acceptance for darwin's theory so why well it's political expediency ultimately it's really that they they want the effect of a society that um believes it is scientifically uh required that we be a certain way that we adopt a certain identity for ourselves which if we choose to do would make us much more capable of being manipulated by forces from the top who want us to sort of adapt to a mob or a herd the more you can get people, ironically, here's an irony and a trick by empire. Okay, I'm gonna that I've <laughs> discovered over the years. Since and this has been applied since ancient times, since Pericles' yeah. Athens and the decay of of the mob rule of Pericles under the, the democracy of Athens that killed Socrates. If you could get individuals to become selfish and self-centered, so that they focus their identity around the the cultivation of the pleasures of the flesh, yes, and avoidance of pain. If you can do that, so that they hyper individualize or atomize right? It's all me. Ironically, you will get them to become more herd-like. Oh, be- I, I, 
I have to say this because this is what's happening mm. in our society because we've yes. be, all become so self, you know, self-indulgent, self-focused, yes. self-centered yes. that even with what we've seen happen over the last three years, the few of us, yes. you know, the few patriots that stepped in are now burning out because so few people have that concept, that simple concept of love yourself you know, love your neighbor like you love yourself because it's all about me and it's all about, well, I better not say anything because I'll get screwed. Let them get screwed instead. And the the funny thing is when we all live like that, we're all going to get screwed because the the end goal I always see in these concepts of are just power. It's been going on since the, the beginning of time. It's like they see there's more of us and they just got to knock us back. Because they don't want us to be smart enough to challenge them either. You know, then you get fluoride and water and all sorts of injections. Um, and then this woke ideology in the schools. And it's just a, it's a simple game that's been going on for millennia is power. And, and they now say with the advent now of AI that, you know, useless eaters like Noel Harari says we're hackable animals. Uh, so, I mean, that takes MK Ultra to a whole new level of mind control when you can hack into someone's thoughts and, you know, kind of control them. That's the ultimate master-slave uh, relationship. I think that's what they'd love because it is all about power. I mean, yeah. that's what people have to start questioning. What's behind the system and who 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 stands to gain? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, you brought up Yuval Harari and his solution to for useless eaters and hackable humans. Uh, how do we deal with the new useless class? Um, very useful. It's a useful guy to like listen to a few of his dirty, perverted speeches because he's like just he's trotted mm-hmm. out as being the voice of the new the new ethical norms that they want to bring into being in their in their wet dream fantasy world of what they want this sort of clean this clean, big kill global fascism to be. And they've got their, their fantasies, but it's just that it's a fantasy thing. So it's, it's useful because he just puts it out there. It's like, it's like reading brave new world revisited from 19, like 10 years after brave new world, Aldous Huxley writes brave new world revisited to reevaluate where is society now gone after his work was published in 1933, the first for the first time. And he's commenting on like, wow, we didn't have Soma when I wrote this, but now with LSD 25, what a remarkable effect it's having. <laughs> and, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, he was warning us. And it's like, no, he was not warning you. It's predictive programming. Yes. He's working with his brother, Julian. They both have two assignments to carry out cultural warfare against all of us in two different domains. Julian has more better eyesight. So he was assigned mm-hmm. to do his, his grandpa's role in carrying out the family tradition of being a horse for empire in the scientific domain. That's where he founded UNESCO, the, the United Nations Education, Science, and Cultural Organization in 46. People can read his manifesto that he wrote for the, the damn thing. It's still on the UNESCO website. I don't know why they didn't take it down yet. It's pretty embarrassing. But he literally mm-hmm. says, 1946, Hitler made eugenics look kind of bad, but it's still the most important of all sciences. So we have to find a way to make the unthinkable once again become thinkable by giving it a new package. And he also says that we have to focus on our reforms in education going forward now, focusing on the baby boomers being born after World War II. Um, that's that's the the new targets now. We we can't really deal with the old generation. You know, they 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 they're too hard to crack. They still believe in Christianity, and they 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 risk too much in World War II to stop the fascist machine. So we can't really deal with them so much. But we'll get their kids and grandkids. That's what we'll do. Yes. And he said, you know, the purpose of education has to be to uh, customize the youth towards the necessity of world government as a way to, to solve our problems. That's one thing he says. 
He says this while at the same time he's not only a lifelong member, but he becomes president of the British Eugenic Society, which he maintains all the way up until 1962, right? While he's in this position, he is the the godfather of the modern environmental movement, first having created the International Union for the Conservation of Nature as the first in sort of ecological, modern ecology movement in 1947, which then he, he also adds to his repertoire by co-founding with Prince Bernhardt, an actual former Nazi, um, unrepentant, um, and Prince Philip Mumbatin, a eugenicist, unrepentant, um, who wants to re- be reborn as a deadly virus to solve overpopulation, Prince Philip. Um, you- they co-found the World Wildlife Fund for Nature to raise money for the, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature in 1961. That's with, Ju- that's with Julian Huxley. And so all this, listen, within that context, look at reread Brave New World, but read Brave New World Revisited, right? It's, it's available online. People can read it for free, get a sense, and then listen to his recorded speech to Berkeley on mm-hmm. the ultimate revolution. Listen to well, it. He just literally talks to these young social engineers, these wannabe alphas in 1960, right before he dies, saying, well, yes, there's always been an oligarchy, and it's always represented a fraction of the percentage of the population, much like an iceberg. And we must always presume as a universal constant that there shall always be an oligarchy. And so the best that we can do as young social scientists of tomorrow is to become servants of that oligarchy. And he's just going through this nasty, twisted, like, you know, and these kids are eating it up. They're like, oh, yeah, me too, me too. And, you know, he's talking to these friggin' brats, right, in, in an audience and talking yeah. about the greatness of the ultimate revolution, how we can get people to, to by promoting psychedelics. And uh, ma- magical mushrooms, and you know, he pr- promoted LSD twenty five through his doors of perception. That's where the doors got their name. He's like, we can get people to love their concentration camp, have a concentration camp, yes. as we say, without tears. And so the electric fence will be in the mind and not physical, and and people will uh, be shocked even before they get close to the electric fence, and they will love their shackles. And that will be the ultimate revolution. The last. That's the end of history. So and and so that's really what when you hear people like Francis Fukuyama championing the New World Order in 1991-82 with the collapse of the Soviet Union, saying like it's the end of history, guys. Mm. That's really the type of shit they're talking about. It's just like it's transhumanism. And by the way, last thing I'll say to link this to transhumanism, Julian was also the co the the, the very word transhumanism was mm-hmm. founded by two guys in 1954, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the the Jesuit uh, satanic priest. Mm-hmm. And uh, who led the Jesuit infiltration and modernization of the, the Catholic Church to bring in? I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff that happened in the 60s in the Catholic yes. Church. But then the other guy that was his close bosom buddy for many years was Julian Huxley, who, who mm-hmm. officially coined the term transhumanism to describe basically the new eugenics as being a science for the elite to the the the, the, the more than humans to manage the less than humans. The Uber the Uber mention. Yes. Yes, said in the, Nazi chain terms to yes. manage, manage the intervention, the less than humans. Um, yes. Well, so that's, that's really it. That's what Yuval Harari is serving. It, I mean, it, it's a fascinating time to be living. It must be for you as a historian, because I mean, I'm just like picking up like on all of these new books, like Alina Freeland. She goes into depth to describing the 
the prison, the electrical grid that they're trying to create, you know, mm. basically turn us into free range chickens chipped and eating bugs and GMO food. And yeah. if you, if you go 15 minutes outside of your zone, your car will shut off and maybe there'll be some, some sort of shock thing with an electrical. I mean, that's the, again, like a wet dream for them. If they could get that built, they would love to control us to that level because it is power and control. I, mean, mm. I don't believe for a second it'll get there, but they're rolling out the 15 minutes cities and smart yeah. cities um so there's it, crazy stuff happening uh, with ai too you look at robots and their faces are so real and if they're just rolling it out now to us it's been around for a long time as they you know they, they pit us against each other you know c- constantly where do you think things are going to go how crazy is it going to get in the next little while before we get some of these crashes because I personally believe that there's only so many people who are kind of waking up to what's going on. It'll be after there's a lot of crashes that uh, we'll be forced to rebuild. What's your... Well, there's different scenarios going forward. Um, I I tend to agree from a a certain level that uh, a crash... Well, I know know a crash is coming on. The crash is built into the system. Um, The question is, how do you deal with that fact of life? does it have to happen? Do people have to suffer and die en masse? I mean, most people are living in poverty. They're living paycheck to paycheck. You know, they're, they're living under in a very precarious phase. You know, that's why suicides have, have spiked drug use and, and, and antidepressants and even euthanasia in Canada is, is like, Made. Obviously spiked. yeah, Made. yeah. I mean, yeah. so does that have to, um, does that level of destruction have to occur? No, it doesn't have to occur. It doesn't have to occur. And, you know, I, I get a little, sometimes I hear certain people amongst our, our community who say, well, you know, all we have to do is just buy land, turn our assets into real estate, land and gold, and we'll, we'll navigate through it. And it's like, okay, that for the few people who actually have some savings and, yeah. and the ability to pay off, don't get in debt, just stay out of debt, pay for your house. And it's like, okay, for the few people who can do that, mm-hmm. okay. But the vast majority who are listening to you, they can't do that. No, it's um, not that's, a that's ultimately very disempowering. Um, it is. So, uh, the, the thing that I think would be possible, even at this late stage, would be for, and in, in, in the case of the United States, it, the fight is primarily located there because the center, uh, the focal point of destruction that's been, uh, that the oligarchy has been working for over 200 years to undo was the American Revolution. They want to, this is why eight American presidents died while in office um, from ha- Harrison all the way to JFK and his brother and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Um and that's why, you know, there was so much effort put into a, a color revolution overthrow of of Donald Trump, who, by all accounts, I think, did have the actual votes to win the thing. Yes. I think that there was a collusion between big tech Dominion voting machines and yes. uh, intelligence agencies to ensure that uh, there were a coup. Because I think that the oligarchy recognized that what awoke in 2016 was a breaking of the script. Hillary was obviously supposed to be put in to continue the Obama policy that would have already probably launched world war three by now, if that hadn't been derailed well, for the time that it was well, just imagine well, how many people might be gone from the planet now. If, yeah. if he hadn't Trump, been elected, he, he yeah, I mean, Trump bought us a lot of time. Trump bought us a lot of time. And also um, what he was doing, people don't even realize this. He was calibrating the United States to, to create an alliance with Russia and they, China got for, and China, and he got the yeah. U.S. military to, to he forced the U.S. military to work and cooperate with the Russian military in defeating ISIS in Syria. 
Um, he extracted the CIA operations from the U.S. conventional military systems. That's why he had a lot of support from the military, people like General Flynn and many others, Chris Miller. Um, China as well had huge, huge backdoor channels with Trump. He just appeared, you know, one day with Vice Premier, uh, the Vice Premier of China in the White, the Oval Office. Nobody expected it unannounced, just saying like, yeah, by the way, um, we should get a U.S.-Russia-China alliance around economic development so we stop putting money into nuclear weapons that can only destroy the world. He just said that in two, May 2019. Um, that freaked out the deep state. And so he did a lot of things. He was threatening yes. to keep the United States out of the World Health Organization to sever the U.S. from its obligations to abide by NATO's programs, to to pull the U.S. military out of the quagmire in China's backyard by becoming friends with with Kim Jong-un and eating chicken wings together there and, you know, like making yeah. a friend. Um, he did this, he was doing things on so many levels and so many, and, and the point that I'm getting at here is that even to this very day, the only thing viable that could turn this around would be that MAGA movement of viable Republicans and conservatives in the United States and independents and maybe, maybe some better leaning disgusted Democrats yes. who want to just like get out of the filth. Um, but well, that's the, there's still some organized force and Trump is still fighting. And I think that that is yes. one of the points that cannot be discounted. Although there are a lot of efforts by the media both mainstream as well as much alt-right that's been contaminated with getting people to go to sleep thinking, no, give up on, give up on that idea. He's, he's a failure. It's, it's all about Ron DeSantis. And it's like, I, I, I'm not against Ron completely, but at the same time, uh, he's shady as sin. He's shady as, as all sin. He's he got is, some uh, connections to the Bush family. He's, um, he's a globalist in disguise, I've heard. He's going to be I, out in soon. I don't think he's going to get I feel tomorrow. that that's the case. But let's just say I'm being diplomatic, and let's just say I give him the benefit of the doubt, and I say that he's actually uh, a good guy. Let's say I say that. Um, well, at the same time, okay, he did some good things in Florida on a state level. Of a he tiny did. I appreciated okay, his gonna... stance on the shot, and particularly with yeah, kids. When you're a mother of kids, that was – that was, that was good. a good thing. That that's a big good point. The points points where they're due. But does he have the cap capacities to does he, has he demonstrated the capacities to not only uh navigate through a federal power structure involving super hostile power structures, agencies, intelligence agencies, uh private sector, public sector networks, and an international community? Does he have any of those wits to to navigate in that world in a useful way? I no. have seen no evidence that he does. No. I have some evidence that Trump has built up capacities over the course of many decades of doing deals, businesses, and having a general good sense of the terrain that he was able to, he could do certain yeah. things and lift certain things that even like a, a a good version of Ron DeSantis, which I don't even think exists, couldn't yeah. even do if he wanted to. No, I so, agree. And and I mean, I have to say, because I mean, I, I mean, I listened to your conversations and many others, and you've probably heard this too. There's this whole fraction of people who think that he's actually still the president and he's calling shots behind the scenes and he'll be back next year. Who knows, right? I but don't know about to, that. Yeah, I know. It's, I mean, I, I try to do like you're, you know, you say. Yeah, 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 I hear you. Discipline mind because you yeah. can take so much in. Yeah. But I mean, whatever, I mean, I feel actually heartened because I go out just like the John Birch Society recommended. And I've been doing this for years, talking to people and I see a shift in them. Like they're more open to information. Yeah. You can get doom and gloom. It's the long run, right? This isn't going to be solved in a year, maybe not even five maybe 10 years, but yeah. when you know how corrupt a system is, this whole thing built on a system of competition with 
Darwin's theory of evolution, survival of the fittest has been perpetrated through society. It's in our minds. It's like collective in your minds. And you're, you're constantly competing against your neighbor. You don't want to help your neighbor because everything's scarce. If we can mm-hmm. shift to a, like a world of abundance where we can learn how to cooperate again, we can build better systems everywhere. And it reminds yeah. me um, of another another thing that's been rammed down our throat. So we have Darwin versus creationism. I don't know how you can, you know, where you can explain it in between or, you know, somewhat, you know, what you think might actually have happened. But another theory that's been rammed down our throats is this whole germ versus terrain. You know, you have Bichamp versus Pasteur. And apparently Bichamp was a much better scientist, but he was, you know, he was kind of quiet and introverted. He had so many more credentials. And he was writing way back hundreds of years ago how it's not about the germ. There's no germ. It's your internal environment. Okay. what right. happened there, it's similar. We got hi- got hijacked. Pastor was kind of a bully. He wasn't as smart. On his deathbed, he kind of confessed. It wasn't, it wasn't the germ. It's your terrain. Basically saying, you don't need to be worried about viruses and little things floating in the air that are going to get you. If you have a good internal system in your body. But think who, ga- who gained from that. So instead, we've gone all these hundreds of years down the whole path of the germ, the deadly germ. Think of what the pharmaceutical companies have gained from that, promoting that theory. And it's a lot like Darwin's theory of evolution, if you ask me. It's the same thing we've been trained to believe something that benefits those at the top level of command in control for their own reasons. And, uh, I mean, you just see that everywhere. Now, once you start to see the patterns. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I know that the oligarchy, one of the techniques, you and I have talked about this so much, is simply creating um, extreme polarizations and then get people to fight polar extremes, right? Absolute radical creationism versus radical Darwinism, fight. Now, neither one actually had a claim to truth. That was lost in the the, the mix, in the the fighting. same thing for like, you know, are you an Austrian school follower of a disciple of von Hayek and von Mises of the Austrian Habsburg School of Economics, which believes in absolute personal liberty and thinks that anybody who thinks of the collective good is intrinsically tyrannical, road to feudal, uh, road to serfdom, or are you a Keynesian, an imperial Keynesianist who thinks only top down and uh, thinks that anybody who thinks about individualism is thus stupid and uh, selfish and ignorant to the greater good? You know, it was a false debate. Keynes and Hayek were both Malthusians uh, who believed all, and von Hayek was a Malthusian. I, I actually cite really? in my article, uh, yeah, his own remarks on the necessity of population, of, only, of having an authority that only grants the right to reproduce to those who, who are able to reproduce, not to those who are not able to demonstrate their own power of uh, being sovereign people. Um, he also calls for a world government entity to enforce the rules of the, the system onto the nations of the world who have to play by the same rules. So he actually is for world government, although he's also for individual liberty, which is like, you think that that might be contradictory? Hell is yes. But yet we're told we have to be one of the two schools. Now, both of them were, uh, it was, it was an artificial debate orchestrated in the London School of Economics in the London Times that got people to forget about well, what was actually going on in terms of what Franklin Roosevelt was doing, the Frederick List movements of anti-Nazis in Germany, the Frederick List movement and the American system movements of Lincoln followers in Russia who were all active and not doing any one of those two extremes. Um, that, that was all like washed out of the discussion, which 
shaped so much of the last 50 years, 60 years of our of our history is this fake fake polarization. So I think the thing with with Bichon and Pasteur, like I, I, I've got here um, a book by Bichon called Blood and Its Third Anatomical Element. I that too. I just bought it. It's a good, yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff in here. And I think there's a lot of value. Um, and I think what we've had is a problem of, of losing nuance though, because like, is it the case that Bichon is wrong about, um, the, the, the environment of our bodies and the proper harmonics and equilibrium of our bodies? No, yeah. he's not wrong at all. That's, that is a, a dominant, I would say, driving factor and take into consideration also the electromagnetic factors that they didn't yes. really know how to think about so much back yes. then. More important, right? It'll, but is it wrong to say that bacteria and other forms of, of pathogens might enter into our body that catalyze some form of disturbance and that induce a certain, um, uh, so-called well, disease. Um, yeah. No, there's actual evidence that bacteria, unclean water, things like that, drank will also bring with it an inducement into uh, sickness of a variety of ways: fever, vomiting, other things. So it's not well, like, huh? Yeah, I was going to say because uh, one of the things, I mean, and yeah, there's something, there is something in between. We could use this as an analogy for almost everything. Yeah. Um, what they said was that when doctors started washing their hands, they, that was, you know, here it is about the germ. People weren't dying on the operating table. But then the, they said that really introducing foreign materials into the body is, um, is the body will fight them naturally. But I yeah. mean, you know, you okay, read so that here's as the well. Thing. Here, here's, here's the thing. Um, is washing your hands before surgery a dumb thing to do? No. Washing your hands before surgery is not a dumb thing to do. It's perfectly fine to wash your hands before you do surgery in somebody's body. Um, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the question of ideological. Do you, do you start obsessing like Howard Hughes, uh, over, you know, who, he ended up becoming such a, a germaphobe that he was like isolating himself, walking around with shoe boxes, like not shoe boxes, but the Kleenex boxes, right? And, um, and he became petrified of these invisible entities yeah. everywhere, right? Uh, everything had to be sterilized, uh, to the point that he became sick. And that's what happens to our kids when we, when we abide by that. Um, th- th- there's always this question of balance. I think that, that Pastor had, I think he's been a little maligned personally. And I'm, I'm weary of anecdotal evidence. So when I hear people, and it, again, when I look at the Bashan book and, and a lot of, of yeah. the people about Bashan, the thing that I, I don't like is the tendency to rely upon, um, anecdotal evidence of, I heard, I heard, she, she heard, uh, this person right. say, I heard that pastor said, uh, I heard that Einstein said, I heard that Edison said this. Um, but it's like, give me the evidence. Where do you say it? Give me the context. Um, that, that falls short. So I think there's been a lot of effort over many generations to get us to think we have to like pick an extreme, like we do the, the von Hayek versus Keynes thing. And I actually see a lot of virtue in a lot of what, um, pastor had done. He was doing some of the most pioneering work on electromagnetism in life. Um, some of the biggest breakthroughs in optical biophysics were ha- that have been suppressed by a century of Rockefeller-funded operations to try to prevent us from understanding the, the electromagnetic components or expression right. of life was pioneered by Louis, pa- Louis Pasteur himself. 
Well, um, actually, you bring up a good point because, and I'm just throwing this out because I'm, you know, now I'm a Rife practitioner, right? And I'm, I'm, yeah. you know, I, and I, you see, you can get, you can, you can lower your load, right? You can keep the internal mm-hmm. environment cleaner. But you bring up a good point. Like these guys mo- might both have been good scientists who cared about humanity, but the, the, those who are in these, these uh, positions of control use the theory that benefits them the most. So the germ theory taken to extreme kind of like Darwin's theory of evolution and applied it applied is part of this whole eugenics thing just like environmentalism it's all applied to harm people to divide Mm -hmm. us to indoctrinate us yeah exactly and and really to to get rid of us um like yeah here's a good example every 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 idea could be radicalized and it's like is the idea that the, the driving concept that gave the renaissance so much power and goodness which is when you had the biggest explosion of human population as well. If you look at the demographic charts of human history, it's the, the Renaissance period that you see like this giant hyperbolic or geometric increase of population. That didn't happen because we're a virus, the way we've been told. That happened because look, well, just look at the rate of discoveries, inventions, new, new, new insights into music, science, architecture, sanitation that all exploded with what allowed that. It was the concept that human beings were all sacred and made in the image of God. And that appreciation of the sacredness of the individual um, came with a bit of a dual. It's like a it's like a, a dual use technology. It's a it's a power because it's a great. You're you're tapping into the idea that every peasant has creative powers in alignment with expressing God's will, the, the God's creation in a peasant, not just a king or a lord, but a peasant. Everybody yeah. can do that. So on the that 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 can also become radicalized towards egotism. And you could see yes. how that was perverted by the Enlightenment, the worst elements of the Enlightenment later on, which took the, the enshrinement of sacred individualism and individual rights and then hyper-individualized yes. um, the psyche through John Locke, Newton, all of the empiricists who said, it's all there is no necessity for God because human science and logic have proven that everything is raw, mechanical rules and laws that we can discover. And because we can do that, We've discounted finally any necessity to have recourse to God as a as a a, a prima mobile, a, a prime mover. We don't need that anymore. So now humans become essentially the replacement for God, the power of, of logic, which is which then enshrines it, it became very quickly in the course of like John Locke's work, enshrined in the idea of hyper radical uh, personal liberty at, at the expense of a whole. So it was like, we used to believe in the collective and the whole and the greater good. Now we know that it's all about the individual and the collective will just somehow become good if you let each individual do what they want to do. Now that was also Adam Smith. It was also ultimately um, uh, uh, Malthus in, in some ways too, because he was also a promoter of Adam Smith. Um, and, and, and so this becomes the, the fight between Herbert Spencer versus Galton. So in, in the 1880s, you got this fake debate, kind of like what I mentioned between Keynes versus Hayek. You have Francis Galton versus Herbert Spencer. Well, they seem to be fighting. They're both two British empiricist, imperialist uh, Malthusians, both of them. And they're having this debate between how do you apply Darwin's theories to human societies? And we know Galton, what his view was, top-down control centralized by government to impose the science from scientific engineers at the top. Herbert Spencer was taking the view that no, liberalism, Adam Smith, if we just let everybody do as they whilst, Alistair Crowley, uh, let them all just satisfy their personal desires to uh, feed their libidos and their passions and avoid pain the way Adam Smith prescribes and let the markets just be, 
then the weak will be filtered out naturally as the strong will assert their dominance naturally and, and the order will just find equilibrium naturally that way. We don't need any government intervention. So it was a fake debate. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. But again, it's this atomize, the more you can atomize the people into sensualism around the idea that is true of the sacredness of inalienable rights, if you can pervert that, then you can bring the parts into conflict with the whole. Versus yes. the founding fathers who were like, no, let's actually make both coexist together where every individual finds that with great freedom, true freedoms come with responsibilities. Yes. If there's no responsibility with the freedom, then it's not real freedom. It's something else. It's just license. So uh, a, a yeah. lot of people are finding these, these concepts confusing and they take years to sink in. Like it's, it's not one or the other. It's, mm. it's a combination of things, but done in, in the proper way. It's yeah. like, uh, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. This whole collectivism and communism got perverted. And, and instead of, you know, everyone being equal, everyone was equally poor. Um, and, you know, yeah. even in the Canadian Charter of Freedom Rights, it's not a very strong document. And I've talked to people and interviewed them versus the Constitution, because we're in, in our document, we're equal under the law, which allows the judges to impose collectivism. Oh, well. Uh, you know, for the good of society, the most equal thing for everyone would be for you to do X, Y, and Z, wear masks inside, you know, do all these mandates. We've seen breaches in that. And the U.S. Constitution has held up a lot stronger. I have a lot of faith in that and how uh, the strong patriots in the U.S. can use that to take their Constitution back. But, I mean... We have these scenarios where these, uh, Darwinists and youth, you know, eugenicists now moving into this whole phase using AI for evil with chat GBT and robotics and everything are taking this to the extreme. And their vision, I think, is like that, you know, um, 1984, you had, they want always conflict. You know, you've got the, the, the one side versus the other. What did they call it? Eurasia versus, um, East Asia uh, and Eurasia and Oceania. Yeah. And, but I'm heartened because of, uh, they're not getting there. They want it all constant fighting, but look at BRICS now. You've got these strong alliances with Russia and China and Brazil and some other countries. But I heard there's so many other countries applying to get into BRICS that pretty soon they'll have 51% of the world's population and they can oh, yeah. just shift uh into a new currency and once they get we get the you know if you get the the bad guys uh, away from having the money they're really going to be a uh, limit in what they can do for harm big time amen to that no that that's that's something that was never part of this new world order uh, like script that they'd been yeah. operating on it was not the 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 convergence and i mean early on you could say well yeah the because people will say but the brick concept that emerged in 2001 was originally planned out by some some creeps at Goldman Sachs who wanted to create a to they could see that there would there was already a convergence of interests amongst Russia, China, India, um uh Brazil, big powers that were outside of the sort of transatlantic sphere of NATO five eyes influence. They could see that there was a convergence already beginning, but they wanted to try to get control of it and sort of control the terms under which this convergence would happen. So, yeah, I agree. I agree. I, that's proven to me that uh, Goldman Sachs, creepy, creepy free, uh, f- eh, figures, were behind the original formulation of the brick. However, things don't often go according to plan because these are still ultimately sovereign nation states. And what happened in the course of the ensuing decade after that, 2001, was um, 
well, on the one hand, you had a, a deeper rejection of the Malthusian ethic. You had Putin come out basically saying in 2007, we no longer, we see that the NATO is, is expanding and trying to create a uh, first strike capability against Russia and also implicitly China. That's exactly what ended up happening. He called it out. He said, we're not going to play this game. Either you work with us as friends and allies, allies building, building things in our common good, or this is going to get ugly. And he warned it in 2007. And he's mm-hmm. been playing in a pretty diplomatic good way up until now, giving us as many opportunities, Canadians, Americans, Europeans, to find points of collaboration around Nord Stream, Nord Stream 2, building the Arctic. He's made offers to build work in uh, with Canadian companies over the years to build the mm-hmm. Bering Strait Rail Tunnel, which he offered in 2007. And again, in 2011, he offered mm-hmm. Canada with, under Harper and Obama and first Bush um, a joint project to have this three-way Bering Strait rail tunnel that would open up new development and raw materials uh, development in the north, which would provide not only massive jobs. assistance for, yeah, yeah I mean, you, there's so many things. You'd create qualitative jobs, trade schools. You'd be able to finally help break the, um, the, the native uh, concentration camps that have been set up where these mm-hmm. people have been forced to just like live in these go nowhere zones where they only have like government spot, you know, some government money to stay in that location and just do drugs while they wait to die. That's been like a racist policy yes. for many generations put onto the Inuit community that would have broken that mo- that model wow. forever. Wow. So Russia showed a lot of goodwill. China showed a lot of goodwill. Um, and now we, they've been pushed to the point where, well, it's either they, go back to the designs of the 1990s and kill off their own people and and destroy their own traditional values and and just submit under this one world government, which they won't do, or do what they're currently doing, which is unveil a new security economic architecture premised around leaping over limits to growth, creating abundance instead of creating scarcity, not eating bugs, eating food, you know? But also, (laughs) because one of the things we touched on, we didn't go too far on it. I had uh, Pastor, um, um, Hildebrandt on, uh, talking about sort of returning to traditional family values. So, I mean, they're also going uh, that direction. I know China isn't allowing all of the gender dysphoria in, in the media and in their TVs. Neither is Russia. I mean, yeah. I think their education systems are, are, are far superior to ours, uh, sadly. Yeah, you want to get your genitalia cut off as a kid to become something else. You can't do that in China or Russia. You just can't. It's, and that's the way it should be. You just can't do that. Um, there, yeah. yeah. And, and the, you know, this, this return to a family, the whole, the strength of the family versus the strength of the state, because they've been down communism. They've experienced the harsh reality that communism leads to genocide and destruction of, of life and, and, and wealth. And we're just learning those lessons here in North America. I had, I met a, a gentleman from Europe who came to one of our events. And I was trying to do a very calm debate with him about Russia and Ukraine, but he was getting irate. And I was thinking, ah, I just don't have all the details, but he was like, oh, the Russians are such bad guys. And there's such a history there to unpack. And even the Ukrainians fighting with them, with amongst themselves, you know, the, the Russian indigenous, the, the neo-Nazis in Ukraine. So it's, it, a lot of these things are so complicated, but overall, I, 
I, you look at the actions of uh, someone like Putin, who's, who wouldn't even let GMO foods in his country because he saw that that was a that was a that was a conduit for poisoning us, and it still is to this day, and we have it everywhere. One of the many ways uh, that they have toxic food, toxic chemicals in food. So yeah. he's a guy who cares about his people. So how yeah. can you sum this up for uh, the audience? This is like kind of, it's you know, connecting all these things. There's, It's been going on not just for hundreds of years, but it's been thousands of years trying to find a way to eliminate your competition, really. Or or gather more. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, and you know, China. There's so many points. One of the ways that this um, that these psyops work is through keeping us ignorant to the reality not only of what China and Russia are actually doing, what they have done, what they have built, um, the abundance creation that they have done that is measurable. You can investigate it. All of these things are doable, but we have been consciously kept from having general awareness or concern about those types of pesky facts. So with that ignorance, also the general ignorance of the culture of China, the, the cultural value systems, it's a different way of thinking if you're somebody living in the Chinese matrix with 5,000 years of history, Confucian, Buddhist uh, principles, values, Taoism is there. You're, you're living in a different uh, metaphysical geometry than somebody who has been a, a product of a Western conditioning. It's just, it's a different way of thinking and feeling. There are common threads. You'll find common, common uh, themes emerge in both, but you have to be able to sort of immerse yourself in that, in that world as much as you can to sort of think and feel um, as, as a Chinese identity would. Um, how do they make yeah. decisions? What is a meritocracy? Because I mean, right. it's like, unlike us, they actually have a meritocracy. Most of the people yeah. working in their government, in the, the Politburo, in the, the standing committees, they all have real world trade school, real world skills. They've built, done things. They have, they're like all engineers, all of them, not maybe one or two or not, but I mean, the, the, the greatest amount of engineers and scientists in their government, which is the way we used to do things back before yes. I was born, before you were born, there was a, a, a different mode of having administrators who had experience in the field that they were administrating. They still right. maintain that. Russia went through perestroik in the 90s, so they it took Russia longer to kick out George Soros, trying to kick Soros out earlier yes. in, back in 1989. Russia <laughs> took them up until 2015. I wanted to add, too, because, and this is something we don't have time. I know we're running yeah. out of time now, but yeah. they still have their own deep state in China. I mean, yeah. they're, they're still getting rid of it, but they, yeah. we haven't even we haven't even tackled it. I mean, yeah, I mean the amount of hypocrisy from that. from people in the in the truth movement right now who really hate the great reset but are so quick to to fall to drink the kool-aid and just blame china for being this evil thing based on like some re like framed narratives that they've been fed without recognizing that look we got it so much worse like we the deep state has its temp tentacles and influence so much deeper in that Canada. has been going on since vietnam war and the, their killing of kennedy it wasn't the chinese who killed kennedy okay this is like something else that's been working us now for a few generations. It's really bad. And we've done a lot of evil to the world. When you compare the amount of governments overthrown, uh, leaders assassinated in third world countries mm -hmm. carried out by the CIA in our name. And yes. you compare that to how many of, of similar case studies do you have that were done by the Russians or the Chinese over the last 80 years? It's not even comparable. It's like a different, we're on the wrong side of history, people. Even though we had all of these nice pleasures being part of a consumer society where we had these apparent freedoms to buy what we wanted and like say what we wanted for a period, 
okay, that was all nice, but that came with a cost of us having to look look away, use increased rates of slave labor, child plantations in cobalt mines in Congo, and mm-hmm. all these this poverty of the world had to exist for us to maintain the consumer society lifestyle for the past 45, 50 years. I'm sorry to say it, but that was what that that's the price that we paid for the the fake you know freedom that we thought we got. That's now being yes. taken away from us. Yeah. Will so, that be flipped oh, is what yeah. I wonder. Will we be the slave trade and the slave miners of the future? I mean, I hope not. But, I hope not uh, too, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible, but people have to eat some humble pie, recognize that ultimately the, the, the greatest water, that this is always what I'm trying to get at, is get is to get people to really look at what 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 is China done, what has Russia done, what in, in not what the media says, but what have they actually done to pull out people from poverty, create abundance, create um, a, a, a real challenge to the oligarchy. How did we used to do those things in the past, and we haven't for a long time? And then how can we recognize that the greatest water to put out this fire of this oncoming danger of a new dark age for civilization and it is a danger of a dark age a mass big calling oh, of the population huge. and the forgetting of uh much of our collective memories could easily happen for many generations i don't want that Dumb but the, down. The, the best water to put up that fire of evil is coming from eurasia it's not coming from like that's where russia china india the Thank increasingly the global south increasingly africa um, that's where the actual utilization of the powers of the sovereign nation state are being wielded to carry out a war, a battle against this evil oligarchy, this dragon, it's happening. So either we act the fools and continue to see the, 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 the champions of civilization right now as the enemy and play along with the, this, you know, George Soros's game, yeah. or we eat some humble pie, clean, start cleaning up our own backyard and start problem solving so that we can work to calibrate ourselves with the offers that have been made many, many times by Russia, by China, by India, by other countries that want to be our friend, that want to avoid World War III. Exactly. Do anti-Darwinian stuff. Don't do what Darwin would want. Work like a human. Collaborate. Right. I'll wrap it up to the beginning. That's yeah, the thank okay. you. That's for, that's the solution to everything. Just go yeah. against everything that's said for them. Go yeah. against the eugenics and live and create life, but do it in a sacred way. That yes. is inspired by moral, if you don't believe in God, by morality and loving your neighbor so that your actions for yourself are also ones that will impact your neighbor in a loving way. Yes. It's I so think nice. That, there it's we so go. Nice. We put yeah. a little bow on it at the man. end. Yes. Love yourself. Yeah. Yes. And I would say, look, for, I'll just make one last accolade. For people, as I pointed out at the beginning, nothing that we said today could possibly do justice to the topics that we were discussing. So I'd say if people really want to dig in more deeply and really get a, a firmer grounding or rooting of a lot of these ideas, uh, pick up my book, The, the Clash of the Two Americas, Anglo-Venetian Roots of the Deep State, or on the China Nut, because that's a tough nut to crack. Uh, my wife and I yeah. would just put with our... Our friend uh, Jason Dahl, who's a collaborator, a filmmaker, we just finished producing um, a 27-minute video on how China kicked out Soros, how Soros played a role in the overthrow of Trump, uh, what was he actually trying to stop in terms of a U.S.-China-Russia relationship. That that, We go through that in this video. People can go as of um, next week onto CanadianPatriot.org or our YouTube or Rumble or or BitChute pages and find that video. Okay. And uh, it, it's sort of acting kind of like a commercial to to promote our uh, special report on breaking oh. free of anti-China psyops, how oh, the Cold War is being revived and what you can do about it. It's a full color special report that can be got on our, our websites as well. Oh, um, love it. 
That's amazing. Highly useful stuff. Yeah, I yeah think I'm going to pick that. that up. And, and just uh, just tell the audience before you leave, because I know you're going to be away for a while. You and your wife are heading out on this, like, big tour of Asia and, like, giving talks. I mean, that's unbelievable. What, where are well, you going? How long it, will you be it's away? It's going to be um, Ireland. There's going to be a conference on uh, Think Local. Uh, Catherine Austin Fitz will be one of the speakers oh. and uh, Alex Craner, a few others. Um, so that'll be on, in, in Ireland, just south of Dublin, um, on February 25th. And if people want to know more information, they can email me at uh, CanadianPatriot1776 at tutanota.com. I'll give you the info on how to register if you're in or around Ireland or the UK. The other one is going to be in Switzerland um, on March 10th and 11th. And that's going to be more on East-West relations and uh, a little bit more on the metaphysics of, uh, of politics. So, And that'll feature also speakers like Daniel Ganser, uh, the guy who did probably the most valuable work uh, unveiling the reality of Operation Gladio, the utilization of Nazis and fascists after World War II into U.S. intelligence and, and British intelligence. Also, uh, Dirk Pohlmann is going to be there. It's going to be over. He's another award, award-winning oh. filmmaker is going to be speaking. Um, so, yeah, if people also want to know about that event and they're in, in or around Switzerland, they can also email me to that same thing, CanadianPatriot1776 at tutanota.com. And, I'll, and then in Japan, yeah, we're going to do some stuff, more more uh, business and uh, collaborating around a video series. Oh, yeah. wow. Because, uh, I mean, another time, if I could get you back, I know you're getting more and more popular. I'd love to dive into Japan. I, my, my, my kids want to go there. We're probably going to go later this year. Um, so I'd love your comments on that. I wanted well, to- What you should do is uh, interview my wife. Uh, she's written a series of three articles recently. Oh, I love um, that. Yeah. Breaking down a lot of uh, what what goes on behind the scenes around the Japan questions. So, yeah, reach out to oh. her and she'll, I'm sure, be happy to talk to you. We'll set that up. And, and finally, before we leave, uh, you recommended this book, which I'm going to read uh, by, by uh, Lyndon LaRoche, a bit of a controversial figure if you Google him. But oh, yeah. great, really solid ideas. And I know you were trained with his kind of philosophy for a while. It's called There Are No Limits to Growth. Uh, Lyndon LaRoche Jr. I picked that up recently along with some of his other books. Uh, like anyone can be a genius. I forget. It's called Genius. Oh, Genius Can Be Taught. That's a great That's, book. It, yeah, yeah. I have it too. I, I have so many books now. I, I mean, hard books I'm reading, but what? I am going to read this one very soon. Hopefully next time I interview you, I will have read it. And okay. uh, other than that, thanks so much, Matthew. It's always a pleasure. Have a great trip. And yeah. I will reach out to get your wife on my show to cover Japan. It'll probably be in April because we're going to be traveling around. But, uh, yeah, looking forward to our next conversation. I'm sure Cynthia will be happy to, too. And it's always oh. a pleasure, Tish, talking to you. I, I love these I love these chats. Oh, thank you. I'm learning a lot. Take care. Have a I, hope your son, I hope your son digs it as well. I, I hope he enjoys the, the conversation. Uh, yeah, I'll get him to listen. We're going on a ski trip. But after that, I, I will so ask. He can't get out of the car while you're driving. So that's good. All right. <laughs> All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Ciao.